try to, as much as we can, uh, put a bow on the last couple of uh, Sunday sermons and last Wednesday night's teaching on uh, generosity. So, um, let's see here. Trying to get everything to work on my end. There we go. Um, so tonight's just going to kind of uh, be like a big overview. It's uh, really not an overview. That's the wrong word. It's a review of what we have uh, talked about over the last uh, couple of weeks. And so uh, this may not work up there. Um, so it's going to kind of be rapid fire. Anytime you, you've got a question or you've got a comment um, that you want to make, then uh, by all means, uh, jump in uh, because that's, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. Um, so, again, here's just some big um, takeaways, especially from um, just from my own personal study of, and, of preparing each and every week to preach on uh, generosity. Um, so, number one, I'm, I'm going to kind of start with the, uh, with the negative over the positive. And, and it's really not a negative. It's going to seem like a negative, but it's really uh, a positive. And that is, uh, why, why does the Bible teach us to be generous? I, I think that's really, uh, you know, always an important question when we come to the Scripture, is why is the Scripture wanting me to do this? Why is, why is Christ teaching me to live this particular way? And so, um, so that's the question I want to answer tonight in, in really three unique ways. The first one uh, is that generosity um, crucifies the flesh. Okay, it crucifies the flesh. Now, let, let's, let's just talk about that for a moment. Uh, we, we went into some depth last Wednesday night about how in salvation we have this, we have this supernatural experience. Okay, it is a supernatural experience. Let's don't let's don't forget that. Let's don't boil it down to that. You know, you nodded your head and said yes to a couple of questions that the pastor asked you. You know, do you believe that? Uh, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin. Do you believe he lived a sinful life? Do you believe he died on the cross? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Right. Those are kind of the standard questions that we ask people who are contemplating or who are professing faith. Well, you can say yes to all those questions and still be lost, okay? It's, it's not a matter of saying yes to that. It is a matter of God opening our hearts to the realization that that is true and, that, and, and our embrace of that by faith. I won't go into any detail, much detail about this, but there's an interesting story in the book of Acts, I believe chapter 16, maybe, uh, yeah, I think 16, where you have the story of Lydia. Are you familiar with the conversion of Lydia? She was a part of a group of women that were having a bio, uh, this prayer meeting down by, the, uh, down by uh, a creek. That's what I'm going to call it, a creek. And Paul comes up. Uh, he's on a missionary journey. He comes up. Uh, he kind of eavesdrops on this prayer service that's going on. He goes into this conversation with these women and through it all, Lydia, who the Bible, this is what's interesting, she said she was a God-fearing woman, but it says that the Holy Spirit opened her heart 
and she believed. Hmm. Now, wouldn't you think when you read God-fearing woman that you would automatically assume that this woman is a Christian? Yet she feared God, but she didn't believe. And, and, and that could be said of, of a lot of people in the, uh, uh, in the world of Christianity. There's a lot of people who even have some you know, amount of fear of God, who have a knowledge of God, but yet they still, don't, they still don't know the Lord. Why? Because their heart hasn't been opened up. But anyway, her heart was opened up to the Lord, and she had this salvation experience. And so that's what salvation is. It is a supernatural experience that human beings have, okay, that converts their soul. And as we looked at last week, uh, Ezekiel says in a prophecy that, that salvation, when the Lord comes, is going to take out a heart of stone and is going to put in a heart of flesh. Okay, and remember we said last week, what does that mean? That means we have a heart that can obey God. That gets removed. Now we get a heart that can obey God. It doesn't always obey God, but it has a capacity now to obey God. It has, remember I said, it has a desire, an appetite to want to obey God, whereas before uh, it, it didn't. And so, uh, so now we have this heart of flesh. I'm talking just about born-again Christians. We got this heart of flesh that wants to obey God, but we got a big problem that still remains. We still sin, right? Everybody sin today? Yep. I hope you did, because if not, you're a liar. And, and then we got a bigger problem. You sin today. We all sin today. Though, we, though this heart of stone has been pulled out and the heart of flesh has been put in, the flesh, and that's not this, okay? The flesh is the sin that remains in us. I've said this a thousand times here, so let's say it a thousand and one. Uh, when we're saved, salvation breaks the reign of sin, R-E-I-G-N, the power, the reign of sin over our life, but, it does, but sin still remains in us called the flesh. And so when it comes to generosity, one of the reasons why, God, listen, God does not need your money. He doesn't. He can run the world without, without your currency. So why, if God doesn't need our money, then why does God tell us to give our money? Because we need to give because giving or generosity breaks the power of canceled sin in our life. Sin's been canceled, all right? But it breaks that power of sin that still remains in us. So that's why I use the term that it crucifies the flesh. Okay, that's what happens. It crucifies, generosity crucifies the flesh. Listen to these verses. First uh, Timothy uh, 6, uh, 10, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into destruction. Now listen, what is that? That is the opposite of generosity. That is the flesh unchecked. You got that? That's not a pretty picture, is it? Fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless. I love the fact that Paul used that word. Why? Because you know what he's saying? It's stupid. I can say that tonight because I don't have kids in here. 
Okay? And y'all know that's not a bad word either. That word's actually in the Bible. But it's stupid. That's what he's saying. And harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of, not evil, all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith. So think about that. It, it doesn't, listen, it doesn't take away your faith, but what money can do is make you wander from the faith. What's that mean? It, it, it draws you away from what's best and what's good for your life and pierce themselves with many pangs. Now, we get people psychological treatment when they start cutting themselves or are doing harm to themselves, right? Because we say that, that something psychologically is broken in that person. Well, listen, this is, this is kind of the effect that, that, that sin has on us. And, and this is as it relates to, uh, to money, uh, to, to our lack of generosity. So, it crucifies, so generosity crucifies the flesh, but listen, guess what else it does? It, it, generosity kills pride and greed. The root of every sin is, is, is pride. Every sin you've ever sinned, you've sinned because of pride. And I can prove that to you because basically what you've said is, okay, God, you said to live this way. I don't think you're right. I'm going to live this way. That's pride, right? So every, the root of every sin is pride. And generosity will kill greed. It's the only way to kill greed is by giving. So listen to these uh, verses uh, coming out of Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 20. Okay? Now this is Solomon, so let's remember who's writing this, the wisest dude that's ever lived outside of Jesus. In wealth beyond our imagination. Okay? Just read the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes when he's like taking inventory, especially chapter 2. He takes inventory of his wealth, and it is obscene how wealthy he is. This is what he says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth. Uh, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he, he who loves wealth. With his income, this is also vanity, or vanity is also said it's like chasing after the wind. When goods increase, they increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of, of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his tool that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness 
in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting, now watch this, is to, enjoy, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is a gift of God. You see what Solomon is saying there? That there is there's a responsibility given to the laborer and there's a responsibility given to the, to the rich. Both of these are gifts from God. And both of these are to be enjoyed. But here's what Solomon is, is, is ultimately saying. It is easier for the laborer to enjoy what he has than it is for those who possess much to enjoy what they have. But what is important here to understand is that... Well, let me just read the next verse. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So Solomon is saying in these verses, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 20, that if you don't get a handle on wealth, wealth will get a handle on you. Wealth is given to us by our Lord not to destroy us, but to deepen us. Because what does he want both the laborer and those who have wealth to understand? That it is God that's given this to them. That's how you handle money in a generous way is that you realize where it comes from. You realize the source that is bringing it to you, whether it is bringing much or whether it is bringing little. We have to understand the source in order to steward the resources in a way that does not bring harm into our life. And if we steward it right, what actually happens is, is that it doesn't destroy us, it actually deepens us. It deepens us. And we need that because we're shallow people. If you really want to get honest with yourself, the, 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 the most honest statement you could say to yourself is, I, I, I'm, I'm very shallow. Very shallow. And that's not being negative towards yourself. That's, that's being honest. I, I, and we need to be honest. Why? Because until you admit that you're shallow, you can never be deeper. He who gives us wealth also supplies the needed ability to enjoy it. So God has not given us wealth necessarily as a curse. If it becomes a curse, it's because of our own foolishness of not listening to His guidance and how to handle the wealth that He's given us. He wants us to enjoy it. God is not against you enjoying what you have. He's just against what you have running your life. Our ability is not innate, but engrafted. So it's not... Our ability to handle money is not... Yes, there are some people that are naturally better with money than others, but listen, still, it is not something that you are naturally born with. And, and, and again, as Christians, to practice Christian generosity is a supernatural participation. It's a supernatural act. And, 
I use the word engrafted there because um, in salvation, okay, going back to that, because again, everything, all generosity springs from this experience of salvation. In salvation, we are grafted into the vine of Christ Jesus. How many of y'all are familiar with John uh, chapter 15, where G, uh, verses 1 through 10? Jesus has this whole discourse about vines and branches. Maybe you're at least familiar with that kind of lingo with Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Anybody heard that verse, apart from me, you can do nothing? Okay, that comes out of John 15. I believe it's verse 5. It's stuck right in the middle of this, t- this discourse that Jesus is having Right after the upper room meal, they're actually walking through a vineyard heading toward heading to Gethsemane when Jesus has this conversation, this kind of final teaching about, listen, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. Here's what happens. You're a branch over here, and you're in a vine that leads to death. Okay? Why? Because this vine that you're hooked into is just pumping you full of sin, okay? It's, it, you're in the branch of Satan. I mean, you're in the vine of Satan, okay? And all you're doing is, you know, you, you're, at, you're a slave to him, you're a slave to sin, you're a slave to your desires, and, and, you, and, and, and that vine is just pumping you full as a branch of everything that you need to continue right on to hell. But what happens in salvation, Jesus comes along, and he's the vine dresser, right? Are you all familiar with that term, that Jesus says, I'm the vine dresser? So what does he do? He comes along, and he does what a vine dresser does, and he cuts the branch out of that vine, and he takes that branch, and he brings it over to the vine that is called Christ Jesus. And here's this is my understanding of how grafting works. So you take a branch and you cut a, a plug, that's the word I'm going to use, they got a different word, but let's just go plug, because we we're, we're Southerners, we understand plug, right? So they, they cut a notch or a plug into the vine, and then they take the branch, and they stick it into that notch or the plug, and then they take tape, and they tape it, and within a few weeks, guess what happens? They can remove that tape, because the branch has now grafted itself into the vine. That's what Jesus is saying happens in salvation. I'm taking you out of this vine, and I'm putting you into this vine, and now what's happened is that his resources began to flow into our lives. Our lives began to bear witness that our Father is the origin and the owner of all of our wealth. It is this understanding which empowers us to enjoy all that he has given us, When you know whose you are, you will know who you are. Generosity breaks the power of canceled sin by laying up treasures in heaven. That's what begins to happen. This this new flow starts happening in our lives. And all of a sudden, desires that really never existed, all of a sudden begin to exist. And where does that come from? That comes from the fact that you've had this supernatural experience. You've been grafted into the vine of Christ. Uh, I love what uh, Martin Luther said. He said, I judge all things only, I mean, excuse me, Charles Wesley. uh, I judge all things only by the price 
that they shall gain in eternity. That's kind of the mindset that begins to develop inside of the, the heart of every Christian. I judge all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. So, first, it, um, it kills the flesh. Okay, that's what generosity does. But then it does something. So let's, let's look at something more positive. Okay, not that that wasn't positive, but something that sounds more positive. It cultivates fruitfulness in our lives. It cultivates. So we're staying with this whole um, uh, uh, thought process of uh, gardening. Okay, that's, that's Jesus' most favorite uh, metaphor for teaching about the Christian life is that he is, he, he's using these, uh, uh, these gardening uh, illustrations. So generosity cultivates fruitfulness, i.e. the fruit of the Spirit. Now listen to what Paul says. But the fruit of the Spirit, watch, is joy, I mean is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And if you think about generosity, when you give, every one of those nine aspects of the fruit are developed. When I give generously, does it, not, does it not develop love in my heart? Joy? How about peace? Patience? Kindness? Goodness? Faithfulness? Gentleness? And, and, and the last one, self-control. Not only does it develop fruitfulness... Okay, And that's really the fruit that Christ wants us to bear, those, those nine aspects of that one fruit. And, and listen, and I say fruit, nine aspects for this reason. They're not nine individual fruits. They're, it's one fruit that, that, that shows itself in nine different ways. But listen, you can't, you can't say when, and when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit... Well, I want to be a more loving person, and yet self-control not follow. Or you can't say that I'm going to, be, I'm going to focus on being more self-controlled and not become more loving. They, they are concatenated. They are, they, one cannot exist without the other. That's what concatenated means. Uh, you, can't, you can't pick one out and say, we're going to grow one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, because you're treating it like an individual fruit. You have to say, you have to understand that they all grow together or they don't grow at all. You can't say, I'm more loving, but you're, you have zero self-control. Why? Because it's connected. In the spiritual realm, now, people might say, well, it's not connected. Okay, maybe secular-wise, you know, I don't know, but I, I can tell you in the spiritual realm, it is. And I can tell you what, people that are peaceful are loving. And people that are loving are peaceful. You can't not have peace in your life and say, well, you know what? I got joy. I may not have peace, but I got joy. No, you can't. And if you got peace, you're going to have joy. You can't, you can't say, well, I'm a very peaceful person, but you have no joy in your life. 
But what generosity does is it is one way that we cultivate that fruitfulness in our life. Because in giving, if, and we don't have time tonight, it's not about diving deep into that. It's just about just kind of exposing you how your generosity cultivates that fruit of the Spirit in your life. But not only does it cultivate fruit, this is really kind of where I want to really spend, I guess, the majority of the time, uh, even though I've kind of blown through a good bit of my time already. It, it cultivates faith. And that's probably, for most people, what's most important. How do, I, how, do, how do I get my faith stronger? How do I get my faith deeper? How do I deepen faith? So here's just some ways that generosity grows our faith or cultivates our faith. It, it validates that loss is gain. If you really want to really get a bigger faith, then bigger faith comes when you realize that when I lose, I gain. And when I gain, I lose. Right? Jesus says, if you gain the whole world, you lose what? Your soul. Jesus said, you want to be first? Then you got to be last. Because the first will be last, and the last will be first. Generosity, so here's the way, you know, I, I told you, you know, I try to take, I try to find stuff in life to compare it to. That way, when I'm doing or see that in the world, it, it triggers a spiritual, uh, a, a spiritual trigger in my life. So I, like I told you Sunday, like when I see UPS and FedEx now, it reminds me of how I should steward God's money. Okay? UPS and FedEx, their job is to get the resource to the front door, not to take the resource home with them and keep it. That's my job. God gives me the resource. My job is to get the resource where God wants it to go. To my family, to paying my bills, to putting food on the table, supporting the, uh, the work of the Lord. It's not about stockpiling up a bunch of stuff for myself. Um, but in this sense, anybody in here play uh, Uno? What's the object of Uno? Get rid of all the cards. Strate your strategy is to win is get rid of all the cards in your hand. That's kind of what giving is. If you want to win spiritually, if you want to cultivate your faith, strategize how to lose and you will win. A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. So generosity also helps me to evaluate wants versus needs. What's a want? What's a need? Well, generosity is going to help me do that. Because what it can help me to do is if I'm getting ready to make a purchase, I could say, you know what? I mean, there's nothing sinful about making X purchase. However, and Ron and I talked about this. So, Ron, I'm going to give you credit for this point because he kind of he greased my wheel about this the other day. It, it, it's, it's, it's like this. I may can, I, it may be totally legitimate to go and purchase said item, but in my mind, if I say, you know what? If I purchase this... It's really going to tighten the purse strings 
And if somebody came along and really needed some help, if Sunday I went to church and a missionary showed up and needed some support, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do anything. Kind of helps me to determine wants versus needs, right? But if I can, but if I can, if that's something I want, and I can, and I can make that purchase, and it not affect me whatsoever in being able to be ready to be generous, then I would say that per, that that purchase of a want would be totally okay. But most of the time, what's happening is. Is that when we make? I'm, so let me just. I'm not even going to include y'all. I'm just going. I'm going to talk about me. When I make a want purchase, most of the time, what it's going to do, it's going to handicap me from from being generous. I might could give you five dollars, but I sure couldn't give you a hundred dollars. And for most people, five dollars doesn't help them out that much. So. It becomes a filter. Generosity drives me deeper into dependence. Right? That You should just say, duh. Because if you give 10%, the, the, the bare minimum of what a Christian should give, if you give 10%, then you're saying, God, I'm, I'm depending on you. I'm depending that by giving this 10%, that you're going to help me to live on 90%. But then the Lord wants to really stretch us further in that. Because he may, he may want us to give 18% or 25% or 40% or whatever percent it might be. Or just a number. Not necessarily even a percent, but a, but a number. You could be like George Mueller who um, determined in his life, his family determined that they were going to live on a set amount of money and they were going to give the rest away. And so uh, uh, a biographer of George Mueller's did the research and said that in the final year of his life, he, gave, he lived on 8% of his income and gave 92% away. Now, he wasn't living in a poorhouse because his income at that time was fairly substantial. But, they, but this biographer said that, according to his research, that over the course of his life, he averaged giving 84% of his, of his income away. And he lived on pretty much on average of 16%. Okay? He didn't do that overnight. He got there over time. This is not about trying to get you to get there overnight, because for most people, it's just, can, can you just get to the floor, not, not to the ceiling? But what does it do? The more I give, the more dependent I am on God. Generosity declares my dependence on my Father and my independence from the love of money. God, wants not, God the Father wants nothing more than for you to be dependent on Him. He really wants you to trust Him for daily bread. That's just not some prayer we pray before sporting events. That's a prayer that He really wants us to pray and believe and mean. 
Why? Because God knows that you'll trust your money more than you trust Him. And if you do that, your faith will be incredibly weak. Incredibly weak. It will be shallow. It will be wafer thin. It will be one job layoff away from maybe even putting your faith on the ash heap. It's a good thing Job wasn't shallow. But do you know what I, do you know what I find interesting about the story of Job is that the depths that God wants to deepen us is scary. Job had all this stuff, and he, he knew it was from God. And God took it all away from him. And Job's sitting there with a piece of pottery, and he's scraping sores off his body, and his wife's saying, curse God and die. And his friends come along and say, well, you must have sinned somewhere. You must have done something to make God mad. And he has to go through this whole long journey so that when he gets to the end of his life, not to the end of his life, but when he gets to the end of this journey, he could say, God, I knew you, but now I see you. He's not saying he didn't know of God before. What he's saying is, I had an experience of you at one level, now I got an experience of you at a whole nother level. When they talk about the Old Testament about seeing God, they're talking about uh, this really magnanimous Spiritual experience. But what did God do at the end? Now, this is where the health and wealth people like to do. They're like, well, look, he come out at the end, and he had more at the end than he did at the beginning. That's not the point. The point of it is this. He had to go through everything he went through so that he could be a deep enough person to have all that God gave him at the end so what he did get at the end would not ruin him. He wasn't deep enough to handle it. He had to go through that. Uh, when we sow, remember I told you Sunday, so I use that as an acronym of Steward of Wealth, S-O-W. We cultivate faith for generosity. When we sow, when we steward our wealth, we cultivate faith for uh, generosity. Because giving and sowing is a tangible act of faith. When you give, that, is, that, that I mean, that's tangible. That's a tangible act of faith. The question is not how much of my money will I give God, but how much of God's money will I give, will I keep for myself? I don't that 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 hurts. Right? It's not about how much of my money will I give to God. It's about how much of God's money will I keep for myself. Generosity connects me to the Father's heart. You're never more like Jesus than when you give. Generosity enables me to love God and not money. It allows me to love others as myself. You want to be a more loving person? Be generous. But you can't say you're a loving person 
and you're Scrooge. I know it's I know we're past Christmas. You should really go back and watch the Christmas Carol. I went I went back on YouTube and watched not the whole thing, but I watched the part where after all the ghosts have left and he wakes up and he has this total transformation. You you you, you went from this miserly, mean, hateful, greedy, rich man to this guy who all of a sudden because of this experience has this heart that overflows in generosity. It's a pretty good picture of what should happen to Christians when we have an experience of salvation. Generosity breaks me free from earthly bonds and bonds me to eternal truths. So Matthew uh, 6, 19 through 25, remember, don't lay up treasures here on earth. Why? Because it's stupid. They rust. People steal it. It goes into a yard sale at some future date for somebody else to buy. It ends up in the landfill. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because there are no yard sales in heaven. There's no thieves in heaven. Nothing rusts in heaven. Whatever goes to heaven stays in heaven. It endures. It lasts forever. But also, the key is, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Charles Wesley was out preaching one day, and this guy found him and said, Charles, you must come home now. Your house is on fire. And he said, my house is not on fire. God ha God's house is on fire. He said, praise God, one less thing I have to be troubled over. And he went on about his preaching. That's extreme. Most of us couldn't respond that way. But we should be able to respond if somebody called and said, hey, your house is on fire, or hey, your house just burnt to the ground. You know what? A lot of good memories in that house. But that's God's house. It's not my house. It's God's house. If you fall apart, it's because your treasure is in your house. No one can serve two masters, right? He'll either love one and hate the other, love one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You, you cannot be a slave to both God and money. But here's what's interesting, and I had never saw this until the other night. When I was looking back at this passage, we know these verses, and we know this next section, but I don't think we often connect it. When you get to verse 25 of Matthew 6, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You know, he goes on, he tells, you know, like, uh, look at the lilies of the field, God clothes them, they're here today, gone tomorrow, look at the birds of the air, uh, you know, God directs them to their food supply, on and on and on he goes. He gives us all of these 
uh, nature um, illustrations to remind us on a daily basis not to be anxious. But he's already given us the reason not to be anxious, right? Because he says, therefore, which means because of what I just told you, don't be anxious. If, if money is not your God and you're laying up treasure in heaven, don't, there's no reason to be anxious. Why? Because it's not going to rot. It's not going to rust. It's not going to be stolen. It will endure forever. Why? Because it's in the hands of a good master. But something else we need to really grasp hold of, and this is, this is really kind of what I wanted just to get to tonight, um, to kind of end on a high note, because I can already tell I'm not going to get through everything that I had jotted down. Philippians chapter 4 has two verses in Philippians 4 that are the, probably the most quoted verses in all the Bible. So look, just go to Philippians 4 in your Bible on your phone. I want you to see this, because I want you to see this is, this is how jacked up we are. All right, When I, I read this, I was like, we need help. <laughs> we, we really need help as Christians. This, Philippians 4.13, right? Anybody know that verse? Well, we're going to think about 13. We're going to read 14 through 17. Philippians 4.13. If you watch college football, you should know this because Tim Tebow would put it on his eye black all the time. For I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Bad thing about it, it has nothing to do with football. Matter of fact, it has nothing to do with football. Or... The verse that comes at the end of this little section, Philippians 4, 19. My God shall supply all of my needs according to His riches and glory. But what's sandwiched in between? Well, look at verse 14. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. This is Paul talking. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now watch, here's the key verse. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Jesus said... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because it's a smart thing to do. Paul says, not that I seek the gift. I'm grateful for the gift. I'm grateful for your partnership. I'm grateful for your help. But even had you not helped, God still would have provided somehow, some way. So, I'm still trusting God, but look what he says. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You know what he's saying? <laughs> what matters is that you gave not to, not to the, 
Paul Missionary Alliance, but you were giving to the Paul Missionary Alliance because you were laying up treasure in heaven. And Paul says, what matters to me is that I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You see, it is not unbiblical or unchristian or ungodly or unholy for us to live and give in such a manner as to lay up, strategically lay up treasure in heaven. Why? Because we are commanded to do it. Now, I didn't write what I'm about to read to you, so if you don't mind, just bear with me for a moment, because I, I, I just I thought, well, maybe I could condense this and say this a little better, and the bottom line is, I'm not that good, so it's best for you just to hear it as it was written. Listen to this. While heaven will be wonderful for all of its inhabitants, Scripture makes it clear that not every believer's position and experience in heaven will be the same. This is why Jesus, now look, keep in your mind, this is why Jesus is saying, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is why Paul says, what matters to me is that, it, this isn't, that what you've done increases to your account, to your credit. Heaven's rewards, its possessions, what you're laying up, possessions, and positions will vary from person to person. Not all of us will hear the master say, well done, good and faithful servant, Matthew 25, 23. Not all will have treasure in heaven, according to Matthew 6, not, that we just read, 19 through 21. Why? Because some people aren't going to heed Jesus' words to lay up treasure in heaven. Not all will have the same positions of authority in heaven. See Luke 19, 17 through 26. We will have differing levels of reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. If you want this, I will just let me know tonight and I'll text it to you or email it to you. You can have a copy of this. Scripture suggests that some Christians will be ashamed at Christ's coming. 1 John 2, 28 says this, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I don't think the shame will continue in heaven but there's no indication that rewards lost due to disobedience on, on earth will ever be restored. Just as heaven will be wonderful for all and even better for some, hell will be terrible for all and even worse for some. So look, the Bible teaches differing re levels of rewards in heaven and different level, levels of punishment in hell. Jesus warned that people in certain towns where he ministered would have a far worse fate on the day of judgment than other cities. Matthew 11, uh, 20 through 24. We've gotten the false impression that heaven must, must be identical for all. If everyone will be happy in heaven, what's the nature of the difference? So heaven is, our belief, is going to be identical for all. 
But the Bible clearly says that there will be different levels of possessions and positions. So what's the nature of the difference? So here's my easy illustration. Jars. Imagine a, a gallon jar. Some of y'all will be gallon jars in heaven. And your gallon jar will be full. Because that's what you did with your life here on earth. Some of us will be pints. And some will be quarts. Full? Absolutely. But you might be a gallon full, and I might be a pint full, and you might be a quart full. We'll be full, but we won't all be full to the same level. Will we all be in heaven? Sure we will. Will heaven be a wonderful experience? Absolutely. But it will not be the equal experience for all. If it is, then there is really no reason to live for Jesus here on earth. The old adage would be true. When we're saved, Jesus should just go ahead and take us on to heaven. If heaven is only about getting to heaven, then he ought to take us on at that point. But it's not about just go, him saving us from hell and bringing us to heaven. He leaves us here on earth so that we have the opportunity to lay up for ourselves as much of an experience of heaven as we possibly can. That's why it's smart to lay up treasure in heaven. No matter how we might attempt to explain it, no matter how incompatible it seems with what we've heard, it is a fact of Scripture that there will be differing rewards and differing positions in heaven. This adds up to different experiences in heaven that are now being forged in the crucible of life. Our rewards are not given merely for our recognition, but for Christ. In Revelation 4, 10 through 11, where the 24 elders fall down before him uh, who sits on the throne and lays their crowns before his feet while they worship him. Though God's glory is the highest and the ultimate reason for any course of action, Scripture sees no contradiction between God's eternal glory and our eternal good. On the contrary, glorifying God will always result in our greatest eternal good. Likewise, pursuing our eternal good, as he commands us to do, will always glorify God. Revelation 3.11 says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We can disqualify from earning crowns, 1 Corinthians 9.27. We can lose them according to 1 Corinthians 3.15. Or we can have them taken away according to Matthew 25. When we seek our rewards, when we seek our rewards from men, we forfeit our rewards from God, Matthew 6, 5, and 6. John warns us in 2 John 8, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Not only can we fail to receive rewards 
through acts of unfaithfulness, we can also forfeit rewards already in our account. I recently read a Christian author who categorically states that people won't own anything in heaven. But what about the different dwelling places believers will have in heaven? Luke 16, 4 and 9. What about treasures Christ has commanded us to store up in Matthew 6, 20? What about the different crowns and the rewards God will hand out to our works? 2 Corinthians 5, 10. What about the fact that we have an inheritance that will be given to us in heaven? Colossians 3, 24. Doesn't the word inheritance imply something tangible that will belong to us? Will your crown be as much as mine? Will your crown be as much mine as yours? Of course not. What about God's promise to give to overcomers a white stone with our new name written on it, a name that no one else will know? Revelation 2.17. Will you and I have equal possessions of those stones or names? The answer is no. The one God gives you will be yours, not mine. The one he gives me, if I'm an overcomer, will be mine, not yours. Is this ownership wrong or selfish? Of course not. Ownership is never wrong when God is distributing to us possessions he wants us to own. Heaven is not a socialist utopia in which private ownership is evil. Materialism, greed, envy, and selfishness are sins. Ownership is not. Believers will reign with Christ. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6. Reigning implies delegating responsibilities to those under our leadership. One parable tells us certain believers will be put in charge of many things, Matthew 25, 21, and 23. And Christ spoke of granting some of his followers leadership over a specific number of cities in proportion to their faithful service on earth. Listen to these verses. We're coming to a close here. Listen to these verses in Luke 19. 12 through 19. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to, to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens uh, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came and said to him, Lord, your mena uh, has, has made ten, ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good, good servant, because you have been faithful in uh, a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mena has made five minas. And he said to him, uh, You are to be over five cities. Real cities? Why not? The New Jerusalem is, a, is the capital city of the New Earth. But that doesn't mean it's the only city in the New Earth. God can spread cities across the New Earth, the New Galaxy, and the universe. And how about this verse? I'm about to throw on you. We'll even have angels under our command. Some of us will. How about 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3? This is a cool verse. Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? You say, what does that look like? I don't know. I just know what it says. 
I recommend everybody buy Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, 500 and something pages, and read it. And, and you will forever, that book, not will, not will change your perspective of heaven, it'll change your perspective of how to live on earth in light of what you now know about heaven. Heaven is not going to be boring. It is not going to be an endless church service. It is not going to, you're not going to have wings and float around and sing songs to Jesus all day long. There are going to be positions to occupy, possessions that you have, a place where you live, business that you conduct, food to eat. Why? Because going to work is not sinful. That's not part of the curse. If we worked in the garden... What do you think you're going to do in heaven? Lay around all day? And, and just, well, it's time to go down to choir practice. Jesus needs another song. He's not feeling worshipped enough today. Why? Because we don't think work is worship. We don't think being in charge is uh, of something, ruling over something is worship. Stewardship is an act of worship. And when we get to heaven, heaven is going to be, in many ways, Genesis chapter 2 all over again. We're going to be back in a place free from sin, that sin will not ever enter into again, and we will live for, with, with Him forever. Here, on this planet. And one of the things that I, I love that Randy Alcorn does is that, in, in his book, Heaven, is that, uh, uh, in many ways, when you read the Scriptures, it's not a leap of faith to, to get to this point, but that... Um, Heaven is just home base for other places to travel to. Other places to go to. Eye has not seen nor ear has heard what God has planned for us. Heaven is going to be an incredible place. What will be your experience of it? Hmm? What have you what have you been laying up? And why does it matter how I live here on earth? Because you don't want to lose what you've laid up. Your life on this earth makes a difference for how you will experience eternity if you're a Christian. It makes all the difference in the world. That's why the Bible puts so much emphasis on not living for this world, but living for the world to come 
not so that you can get into that world, but because you've already gained access through the death of Christ into that world, it is now you living here to lay up an experience there. You know, I've used the, the old story, and I, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, about the, uh, the rich man and the poor woman that ended up in heaven. And uh, they were standing there with Peter, and Peter said, well, come on, let's, let's, let, me, let me take you to your dwelling place. Let me take you to your home. And uh, so they start out, and they're going down the road, and Peter looks at the poor woman, and he said, ma'am, we're going to go to your, you know, ladies first here in heaven, just like down on earth. We're going to go to your house first. And so they're walking along the streets of gold, and they come up, and Peter says, here it is. And it's this big, massive mansion. And this lady lived in a little old shanty her whole life. And Peter says, here you go. And the rich man's thinking, Ooh, if poor lady gets to live in that, I can only imagine what my house is going to be like. And they go a little further down the road, and they come up over the crest of this hill, and down in the little valley there is this little little shack. And they get they walk down into the little valley there, and they stop, and Peter says, Sir, welcome to your home. And he said, oh, they got to be some kind of mistake. He said, in earth, <laughs> he said, I, I lived in a house much, much grander than this. There must be some kind of mistake. And Peter said, sir, there's, there's no mistake. We built the only house we could build because this is all the materials that you sent us up to, be, to build with. That's just an illustration. It's not a, necessarily a reality, but the truth of it is What we do here makes a difference there. One of the things, the, the guy's name is Randy Alcorn, who, who I was reading that last bit from. He, he ends this particular chapter, of this particular book that, that I was reading from, and he says this. He says that um, many people are going to be surprised when they get to heaven because some of the people that are going to be in places of leadership and rulership in heaven. And you're like, are there really going to be people ruling? in? Just go read Revelation 21. It's right there. I'm not making it up. Talks about kings and queens coming in and out of the throne of God, out of the presence of God, and people in, in, in these high positions. Yeah. One of the things that Randy Alcorn says, he said, what, what, what we're going to be surprised is that when we get to heaven is that some of us that were big shots in the church and we knew we were big shots are going to get to heaven and it's going to be the, the little old decrepit lady who about all she could do in her life was give a few pennies and pray. And yet she did more with what God gave her than we ever did with what God gave us. And she will rule over us in heaven. Why? Because she made her life count for what really matters here on earth, and that is eternity.
And one of the greatest ways we can make it count here is through our financial generosity. And just remember, every time you give, you're giving not because God needs it, but because you need it. You need all of the benefits that come from giving. And I gave you just a few of them tonight. And there are many more that we could go through. And so the question is, what will we do, right? What, what will we do with what we know? It's, it it might have been good for you not to come tonight. Because now you wouldn't know what you know. And you wouldn't be accountable for it. But now you know it. Now there's no saying, well, Lord, I didn't know that. I, I, I didn't know the Bible taught that. You do. And so now, to whom much is given, much is expected. So, Heavenly Father, um, in, in everything that we've said tonight, it's, it's tough. It's, it's not easy. And we would just, we would totally be dishonest tonight to, to think that any of this is easy. But it is necessary. And in ev everything that just is difficult about this, you sh Father, uh, we need your help and we need your convincing is what we need. That you have buried inside of this commandment, J-O-Y, joy unspeakable and full of glory. It is hard, but it will change our hearts. It is difficult, but it will deepen us. And what we'll find in it is we will find you. We will be connected to you in ways we've never been connected to you before. We will grow in ways that we've never been able to grow before. There will be a spiritual experience in our hearts and our lives that we have never had before. But, but all of what we have longed for, what we have desired for, what, what we have prayed for, and yet that prayer still remains unanswered because we are unwilling to be obedient in a way that brings the answer to the prayer that we're praying. It's not that you don't want to answer it. It's that you've already given us the answer. And now it is our duty to obey. And when we obey, oh, your word says it'll be joy unspeakable and full of glory that you will pour into us Good measure, shaken down. And so our, our position is just a position of help. And so we ask for that help tonight. We ask that you would take 
one of the truths, some of the truth, all of it, ever how much that we can stand to, uh, to, to absorb or, 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 or that we specifically need in our own heart and that you would just push it deep into our hearts. We would not be able to shake it. We would not be able to get loose from it. It would, it would be like a bad headache that simply will not go away no matter how much Tylenol that we take or, 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 or ibuprofen or anything of that nature. That it, it would just simply attach itself to us in such a way that until we, until we kneel to it, until we begin to obey it, it simply will not let us go. So I pray that you would do that for us. Father, because you know what's best for us better than we do. And I know that you desire for us to experience greater depths of joy and contentment and happiness and peace and joy and self-control in, in, in ways that we don't even desire for our own selves, though we desire those things. Father, this is supernatural. And apart from you, we can do nothing. Come and help us, Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for letting me run over. It could have been long.